And welcome back to Bengal Bites, your home for real, raw, unfiltered talk about the Cincinnati Bengals and the NFL. As always, I'm your host, Derek. This is episode 17. This is the week six recap episode for the Seattle Seahawks against the Cincinnati Bengals. I think I'll title this episode, Sorry, Not Sorry, because can't apologize for winning the game. And that's what the Bengals did. They won the game. They did enough to win. But it was a frustrating win. It wasn't easy at any point. It was edge of your seat all the way through. So we're going to go through the game and talk about all the interesting decisions and interesting plays that happened throughout. On our last episode, episode 16, we did a complete preview of this. And we talked about how the Seahawks were coming into this game off their bye week at 3-1, and one, feeling pretty confident, pretty good in themselves and their record. But... Their opponents that they had beaten were not stellar elite opponents so far. And it was going to be interesting to see if the Seahawks were for real or not. We also talked about how the Bengals were trying to write their season and get back on the right track. And at 2-3, and three, coming in off a win against the Cardinals, it was another question of how real are the Bengals? Okay, they can beat the Cardinals, but the Cardinals aren't any good. This was going to be a prime face-off a lot of eyeballs around the league league around league circles everybody was interested to see this matchup including some of the other ones but in terms of the one o'clock early games this was the big matchup and if you listen to the preview episode most of the things that i talked about it seemed like they came true or it went how i thought they were going to go everything except for the score pretty much i predicted a bengal's loss. I thought the Seahawks were going to win this game, and I said I hope I was wrong, and I ended up being wrong. So thankfully I was wrong, but we'll talk about how and why the Bengals were able to prove me wrong. It felt like the Bengals were going to lose it. Somehow it just felt inevitable. Okay, here it comes. They're going to blow it, but they just, they managed to hang on and do just enough to get the win. And we'll talk through everything that happened in the game, and then we'll over some of the statistics team stats player stats and when you look at those it's amazing how the Seahawks dominated the statistics and it felt like they should have won the game they they won pretty much every statistical category except for the points which is the only thing that's really important going into this game one of the big things to watch we talked about was whether or not T Higgins and Cheeto Bay Awuzie we're going to play in this game. They both did. T was able to go. Cheeto, he's been subbing in and out with DJ Turner, even when he wasn't dealing with a back injury previously, because he's coming back from an ACL injury that he suffered near the end of last season. It was actually in Cleveland on Halloween. Cheeto tore his ACL. So he's still working his way back from injury. He was able to play in this game. And in a similar way, the Seahawks players who had been questionable heading into this game, like Geno Smith, DK Metcalf, Charles Cross, Phil Haynes, all those players, they played for the Seahawks also. So the Seahawks and the Bengals were both at pretty much full strength or as, as healthy as you can be in week six of an NFL season. The weather for this game in Cincinnati at Paycor Stadium was overcast, mostly cloudy, highs around mid 50s so it was throughout the game in the 50s and a little bit of a breeze not a strong wind but maybe about 
10 to 12 miles an hour, just enough wind to maybe impact the throws a little bit, but not enough where it should throw off the passing game too much. It was hard for me to tell whether or not the wind played any role, but there was no precipitation, no rain, so the quarterbacks should have a good grip on the ball to be able to get it out. It looked like Gino and Joe Burrow were both able to throw through the wind pretty well. I didn't see any ducks, any fluttering balls in the wind, but it did seem like they were just a little bit off, both of them, in their accuracy, more so in the second half. I don't know if the wind picked up in the second half or what happened. Neither team said anything about the conditions or the wind, so I assume it was pretty good. The other thing was the temperature being in the 50s made it so that those big guys could stay fresher longer. In some of those hot games, like in Tennessee, it seemed like the defense, when they were out on the field for those long drives, they started to get worn down towards the end of the game. And in this game, the Bengals, even though the Bengals' defense was out on the field longer than the offense, even when they got towards the fourth quarter, they were still putting pressure on Geno Smith and the Seahawks' offense. So it was like the temperatures maybe allowed them to stay fresh, and they were subbing people in and out of the game. It wasn't the same people playing every play. So they were able to get some productivity from their bench off of their defensive line. But I think you know maybe the temperature being a cool, crisp day out, that helped them a little bit too. Bengals won the opening kickoff, and as they typically do when they win the kickoff, they chose to defer to the second half. When they had been 0-2, Zach Taylor won the kickoff and decided to receive, but as more of their typical fashion, they kicked off to open the game. So the Seahawks got it, their first drive. For whatever reason, most teams this season have had a lot of success on their opening drives against the Bengals. It's kind of like the Ravens, Titans, even the Rams, they had a touchdown called back, ended up being a field goal. But a lot of teams have had opening drive success, and the Seahawks took it down on their first drive. A lot of chunk plays, 10-yard pass to Tyler Lockett, 8-yard run to Kenneth Walker. But Seattle's first drive was a lot like a Bengals drive or any of these other teams. Rams, they all look the same. Like They all come from the same coaching philosophy, it seems like. They all want to go 11 personnel, meaning... And they always go shotgun, or almost always go shotgun. It seems like every team in the NFL plays almost exclusively out of shotgun with their quarterback now. They'll have one running back in the backfield, one tight end, three receivers most of the time. Some of them will go 12 personnel, meaning one running back, two tight ends. But most people don't use any more than one running back in the game at a time, and they'll just switch out whether it's a tight end or a receiver. The Seahawks kind of... Marched their way down the field. They had some passes to Noah Fant, Jackson Smith and Jigba, Tyler Lockett. Kenneth Walker had a couple solid runs. He had it looked like he could have had more, but it's it's like different running style, like I said. Kenneth Walker, he's always looking to bounce it and looking for a cutback lane, looking how to bounce it outside, but he never or rarely goes just straight ahead, straight up the middle, putting a shoulder into people like a Joe Mixon. He's not that type of a runner. But he was able to get it down inside the 10. Seattle picked up a defensive pass interference penalty on Nick Scott in the end zone where he was hanging all over Tyler Lockett. They got it on the one, and they ended up scoring an easy walk-in touchdown with Kenneth Walker, one-yard run up the middle. Seahawks went up 7-0 right off the bat. Seattle's first drive ended up being 11 plays, 75 yards, 
for the touchdown and took off about six and a half minutes off of the clock. And you're thinking, okay, this is going to be a rough day if Seattle's just going to drive down, up and down the field all day. This ended up being Seattle's longest drive in terms of plays and yardage of the day. So it wasn't necessarily indicative of how it was going to be the rest of the day. Bengals defense after this made some adjustments, got some pressure on Geno, made him make quicker decisions. I don't I don't know what the difference was, but this was the best drive the Seattle Seahawks had all day. Bengals received the kickoff, and Travion Williams actually got a decent return for 27 yards out to the Bengals, 31. So better than a touchback, and it's we haven't seen too many kickoff returns. Most of the kickoffs have ended in touchbacks. Travion finally got involved a little bit on the special teams. After a couple of plays, Bengals had third and five. Joe Burrow hit the swing pass out to Joe Mixon in the right flat. Joe Mixon caught up, picked up the first down up the right sideline, and before he stepped out of bounds, he put his shoulder into number 22, Trey Brown, for the Seahawks. And that's one of those things where if you're on offense, you want to dish out the hits. You don't want to take the hits. You don't want to just let yourself be a tackling dummy and let guys get free shots of you on the sideline. So that's why Joe Mixon never lets himself just be an easy out. If guys want to tackle Joe Mixon or they want to push him out of bounds, Joe Mixon makes sure that they get the worst end of it. So you saw 22 go flying for the Seahawks. Joe Mixon was feeling himself, and the sideline was hooping and hollering on that one. Joe Mixon was sending a message that it's not going to be an easy day today for these Seattle defenders trying to tackle him. He's not going to just step out of the sidelines and go easy. A few plays later... Bengals had third and two around midfield, around the 50. And Joe Burrow tried to throw another pass to the right to Joe Mixon. This time goes through Mixon's hands incomplete. So that brings up fourth and two. They're just past midfield. They're at about the Seahawks 46. It's too long to try a field goal. And it's so close. It's only fourth and two that you might as well go for it instead of punting it away. And what happens is the Seahawks... They, I don't know if they lost sight of the situation, what down and distance it was. You know, the coaches, I'm sure, were telling them to be aware, but it's fourth and two. You have to know that the Bengals were going to try to get you to jump off sides. And that's exactly what happened. Joe Burrow did a good job with his cadence, his voice of simulating the snap. He gave a nice hard hut sound that made the Seahawks defenders jump off sides gave the Bengals a free first down on fourth and two. That kept the drive alive because we don't know. I mean, the Bengals could have run the play, got the fourth, converted on fourth down and got the first down anyway. But for the Seahawks, you never want to just give them the first down for free. And that was an extremely costly penalty for the Seahawks because immediately after that offsides penalty on fourth and two, Joe Burrow completed seven passes for the rest of the drive, seven passes in a row until they scored a touchdown. Seahawks had them potentially stopped if they could have held them on fourth and two. Instead, Bengals scored a touchdown right after this. And they were all pretty much short passes. There's a nine-yard pass to Tyler Boyd over the middle, three-yard pass to Jamar Chase, five yards to Travion Williams, five yards to Tyler Boyd, nine yards to T. Higgins, three yards to Jamar Chase. Some of these are just swing passes out to Jamar Chase on the sidelines just to pick up some extra yards. The pass to Tyler Boyd for the touchdown was 
basically just a slant. Tyler Boyd has those kind of quick option routes he can run over the middle, got separation, and walked in for an easy touchdown. And that was just a timing route that Joe Burrow and Tyler Boyd have with each other playing for so long. After McPherson's extra point was good, that made it tie game 7-7. to Cincinnati had their first drive go 13 plays, 69 yards, and just about six and a half minutes off the clock. So a very similar drive for both teams to open up the game. Long, extended drives. Seattle helped the Bengals a little bit by penalty to extend the Bengals' drive. But both teams scoring a touchdown on their first drive, so we were thinking, okay, maybe this is going to be high-scoring, high-offensive output game. Seattle takes over with about two minutes left to go in the first quarter. First and 10 from their own 25, Geno Smith tries a pass deep left to DK Metcalf that looks like it's pretty good. DK Metcalf has it in his breadbasket, but Cam Taylor Britt is able to get just enough of his hand in there. He doesn't get a hand on the ball initially, but he gets Cam Taylor Britt gets his hand on DK Metcalf's wrist enough to yank it so that DK Metcalf isn't able to complete the catch. And, you know, Cam Taylor Britt yanks DK's wrist out of the way so he can't make the catch. It's a good play. It looked like maybe the ball was just a tiny bit underthrown by Geno Smith, but it was good enough. It was just a good play to break up the pass and get his arms in between DK Metcalf's arms. That's what they teach those cornerbacks and DBs to, even if they're not able to get their hand on the pass, put their hand in between the receiver's hands and split their arms. Split their arms so that they can punch the ball out if the if the ball ends up being in between their arms. Just swipe through so you kind of split down the middle. After that missed opportunity on first down, the Seahawks were not able to convert first down. They ended up having to punt after that. So they went three and out on their second drive. Bengals took over for their second drive, about 40 seconds left to go in the first quarter. After they ran a short pass to Joe Mixon to the left, again Joe Burrow was able to use his cadence to draw Seattle's defenders offside, so they had a free play. It was going to be offside either way, but the referees let the play continue, and it was the last play of the first quarter. Joe Burrow threw a deep pass to Jamar Chase on the left sideline. It was a situation where... Jamar Chase had Tariq Woolen guarding him, and right at the last minute, he broke his route off and gave Tariq Woolen a little bit of a shove. He didn't get called for offensive pass interference, so it wasn't obvious, but he gave him a little shove with his inside hand, right hand, which was away from where the referee was standing, so maybe it was a little less obvious. Pushed him, got separation, caught the ball, made a couple guys miss, got a little bit of extra yards after catch up the sidelines for a total of a 31-yard gain. Maybe the most interesting thing about this play was after Jamar Chase caught it, he got up and he did his typical celebration where he got up, he did the two-hand flex, flexing the biceps move. But after this catch, his chain, the pendant from his chain was hanging out and it was a 7-Eleven, a gold 7-Eleven, like with the red and orange logo. It was like the 7-Eleven colors. I don't know if it was like real you know, diamonds or rubies or if it was just like fake or whatever it was, but it was interesting because... Last week, during the game, 
he was saying he was 7-Eleven, and after the game in the post-game interview, he was like, just call me 7-Eleven, tweeting out 7-Eleven. So he said like the next day, 7-Eleven sent him this chain, a bunch of hats, a bunch of gear. So he said like they sent him all kinds of stuff to wear, and he said he's got some kind of endorsement deal in the works with 7-Eleven. So that's what happens when you're a superstar. You just name you know whatever brand you want to get an endorsement deal with, and the next day it just shows up. Then the next play after the 31-yard pickup to Chase was a 23-yard pass to Jamar Chase where he was out of the slot on the right and just ran a kind of a skinny post in a soft spot in the zone where they didn't pick him up. Jamal Adams picked up Tyler Boyd and let Jamar Chase go free, and it was just Jamar Chase wide open in the middle of the field. He got it, got a 23-yard gain. Back-to-back plays, Bengals pick up about 55 yards just burrow to Chase. They ended up getting it down to the three-yard line. They had first and goal. Actually, let me go back one play. So they got it down inside the 15. Bengals had third and two at the seven-yard line. They needed to get past the five-yard line to get a first down, to get first and goal. And this is one of the differences between Kenneth Walker and Joe Mixon. On this third and two play, Joe Burrow gets the ball. He gives it to Mixon. Mixon makes one step to the left and then plants hard and drives upfield straight ahead, doesn't mess around at all, goes straight ahead, puts his shoulder down, and picks up the first down in a couple more yards. You know, he sees the linebacker. He sees everybody's up there. There's not a huge hole, but he doesn't care. He sees a little bit of daylight and bursts ahead for as much as possible. In other runs later in the game, if we're watching Kenneth Walker, he doesn't make this type of run when they need those two yards he doesn't plan his foot. He's like too much dancing around, looking to cut it outside and make a, a burst, break it out to the outside, to the sideline, a home run ball, when sometimes it felt like he had yards he could have just got if he would have just powered forward. And Joe Mixon, this is an important run. Third and two, they can't get stopped here. They can't afford to settle for a field goal. A first down, first and goal is very important. And that's where, even though Joe Mixon, he's not hitting those kind of home run runs, just picking up this first down is crucial in this situation. And what happens after they pick up the first down, first play from the three, Burrow gets it, fakes to Mixon. They've got Yossi Vash lined up on the left slot, or he's on the left wing, I should say. There's a tight end, then Yossi Vash is on the wing. They've got Chase and Tyler Boyd, twins, up to the top on the right side. Burrow gets it, catches. I think they're looking for Yossi Vash in the back of the end zone, but he ends up getting held off the line of scrimmage by number 33, Jamal Adams. And Burrow doesn't like what he sees out on the right to Chase and Boyd. They're just trying to, I guess, set up kind of maybe a screen look, but they've got that covered. The Seahawks have Chase and Boyd covered up top. So then Burrow, by some time, drifts out to his left because there's nobody. Seahawks, for whatever reason, aren't able to get any pressure on Joe Burrow, even though they're down on the goal line. And they let Joe Burrow just kind of run around free, he backpedals, backpedals to his left. And that's one of the things that, again, he was not able to do previously. And in this game, he just makes it look so effortlessly. It almost looked like an Aaron Rodgers type of scramble where he's just casually just kind of strolling around out there, backpedaling, backpedaling. You know, Mahomes or an Aaron Rodgers or maybe even a Tom Brady type where he was just it, – it wasn't what we had seen previously this season from Joe Burrow. It was the Joe Burrow of old, where he's out there making plays, just not a care in the world. He finds Andre Yosivash coming from the back of the end zone. He's streaking 
towards the left pylon, Yosivash streaks in front of Tariq Woolen to give himself position so that Burrow can throw it to him in front of Woolen, and he makes the catch in the left side of the end zone before he goes out of bounds. That's his first touchdown in the NFL. Joe Burrow went and grabbed the ball for Yosivash because he didn't even realize it was a touchdown. He thought maybe it was a penalty because Jamal Adams actually got called for a penalty for holding Yosivash off the line of scrimmage. So it's crazy. This guy, Yosivash, he's a rookie in the NFL. He only has one catch in his entire career, and he's got Jamal Adams getting holding penalties on him, and then Tariq Woolen couldn't even guard him in the end zone, and Tariq Woolen was a pro bowl as a rookie last year. And that was good to see Yosivash got a touchdown on his birthday also. Yosivash turned 24. He said that was one of the best birthday presents he'd ever had and his family was at the game he told the reporters later that his parents his siblings maybe even some cousins or were up in the stands so that was cool to have his family there to see him score his first touchdown in the nfl on his second catch no less after the extra point it was bengals 14 seahawks 7 with about 12 minutes to go in the first half seahawks started their third drive from their own 23 yard line they picked up a couple of first downs on short plays. Then on their third set of downs, Seattle tried to do a play-action pass deep. But for whatever reason, Geno Smith didn't like what he saw down the field. He held onto the ball and eventually ended up checking the ball down to his running back, Zach Charbonnet, out of the backfield to the left for a minimal gain. But down the field, DK Metcalf got called for an unnecessary roughness penalty where he was running his route, Geno Smith didn't throw him the ball for whatever reason, and I guess that frustrated DK Metcalf. He felt like he was open, should have gotten the ball. So then he came back and started to block Cam Taylor Britt, the Bengals cornerback who was guarding him on the play. And then towards the end, DK Metcalf just, you know, he's about 40 pounds heavier than Cam Taylor Britt. He just shoved Cam Taylor Britt with both hands, both arms, bench pressed him as hard as he could, shoved him straight into the ground, and he got an unnecessary roughness penalty because they said the play was over and the whistle was blown, or he should have known that the play was over and the whistle. It's kind of an in in between situation. It was definitely unnecessary. Like they weren't anywhere near the play. Cam Taylor Britt wasn't anywhere in position to make a tackle on the ball carrier. So it was totally unnecessary. But if, you know, maybe you could have a reasonable excuse to say, you know, you're so far away that you couldn't hear the whistle or not, or whether or not the whistle had been blown to know whether the play was dead. Still, kind of a silly penalty pickup by DK Metcalf. There's no reason to really do that, just except for frustration. I get it. Like, as a football player, you're frustrated. You're not getting the ball. You know, you feel like you can just physically dominate this guy, and you just want to, you know, you his, he let his emotions get the best of him in that situation. And, you know, you like, obviously, you know, if it were a fight, I would put all my money on DK Metcalf instead of Cam Taylor Bray, but it's not a fight. It's a football game. And so that's the thing about DK Metcalf is like, physically, he's got all the tools, all the gifts to be a stud freak athlete. But in terms of football skills, football game awareness, he might not be quite at the top of the NFL in terms of that. There's other guys like Jamar Chase. Like I would say DK Metcalf is superior in a lot of ways physically to Jamar Chase, but Jamar Chase is a much better, more intelligent, more skilled football player. 
Anyway, I'm not sure how much of a big deal this ended up being because right after this 15-yard penalty, it put Seattle at 2nd and 21. They hit a 32-yard pass to the right sideline to Tyler Lockett where Tyler Lockett got a pretty clean release on Bay Awuzie, number 22 for the Bengals, had a step on him, and it was a perfect pass from Geno Smith, what they call drop it in the bucket, where he hit him perfectly right in stride, the ball seems like it just drops out of the air into Tyler Lockett's hands. There's nothing Cheeto can do. Almost like the touchdown Cheeto gave up against the Ravens. Nelson Aguilar against the Ravens where it was a fade to the right sideline where the quarterback just drops it in the bucket. It's not bad coverage by Cheeto, but the, you know, the perfect pass by the quarterback. Nothing you can do. So that wipes out a lot of the penalty that DK Metcalf had picked up on the previous play. However, the Seahawks are not able to do anything with the ball after that long pass. They end up having to punt again. Part of the reason they had to punt was third and 11, Geno Smith. It looked like he had an open receiver in Jackson Smith and Jigba on his left side, but I don't know if he was focused too much on DK Metcalf because he was complaining about not getting the ball in these previous plays where he felt like he should have gotten the ball and he got the penalty. He was probably complaining like, hey, you should have thrown me the ball. Why didn't you throw it to me? So maybe Geno Smith was too locked in on DK Metcalf because it looked like he had a wide open receiver. But for whatever reason, Geno held on to the ball, held on to it, and eventually tried to run around. But he's, he's a number of times in the game I had to do a countdown Gino was holding the ball for like six, seven seconds. That's way too long. Like if you're holding the ball for more than three and a half seconds in the NFL, you got to expect to be sacked. There's got to be a timer going off in your head. Okay, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, I got to throw it. You know, you can't hold on to the ball for more than three, three seconds or those guys on defense are going to get home. They're going to sack you or get their hands on the ball, get their hands on you, disrupt you in some way. So the fact that Gino was back there, on this play and a few other plays in the game, holding the ball for like six and seven seconds, the guys were open. He just really needed to throw the ball. And he was hurting his offensive line because his offensive line, I felt like, for the most part, held up pretty well. They There weren't like Bengals running in free, guys blitzing untouched. It was just Geno was holding on to the ball for way too long. And that's two drives out of three that the Bengals are able to force a punt, not allow the Seahawks to score any points. Seahawks are playing more of the field position game. They punt it to the 13. The Bengals pick up one first down, but they're not able to pick up a second first down, so they have to punt it away also. Brad Robbins hits a short punt, but it gets lucky. Like It looked like the ball went about 35 yards in the air, but then it bounced and rolled another 11 yards. So it ended up going about 46 yards with no return. That's the thing about Brad Robbins, the Bengals punter, is he doesn't get a lot of distance on most of his punts, but he is leading the league in fair catches. He's not punting very far, but the other team isn't returning the punts back. So the net is not that bad, but we'd still like to see him get inside the 20 like this punt ended up going to the Seahawks 21 so just outside the 20 you want to get a little bit deeper into the other team's territory push them back a little bit further than Brad has been so far but the Seahawks come out and they're able to get a good run on the second play of their drive they pop off a 21 yard run Kenneth Walker 
off the left tackle, gets a good block, and Dax Hill is able to stop him after the gain. I thought, and I talked about in the preview how if Kenneth Walker was able to get past the safeties into the second and third level of the defense, he was going to be gone for a touchdown. Dax Hill does a very good job of preventing that from happening. He's the safety on this play. He does a good job of not letting Kenneth Walker get past him and minimizing that gain. Yeah, you don't want to get a 20-yard gain, but nothing more than that. It was a good job by Dax Hill. I was glad to see that because he's not necessarily the biggest guy, and I was kind of concerned, you know, Derrick Henry. I mean, obviously it's a different beast, different animal trying to tackle Derrick Henry versus Kenneth Walker. Dax Hill did a better job against Kenneth Walker than Derrick Henry, which is understandable. I, I, I don't know why Kenneth Walker, he's not small. He's 5'9", 211, but he just doesn't play as big as he is or as, as big as I think maybe he should. But I don't know, you know, that's Kenneth Walker's style, and maybe that could be beneficial in the long run because as running backs, they take a lot of punishment, take a lot of abuse. That could maybe extend Kenneth Walker's career by not taking all these hits and all this pounding. Seahawks are able to pick up one more first down. They get across midfield, but then the Bengals' defense stiffens up. They force an incomplete pass to Tyler Lockett, a loss of one yard on a run to Kenneth Walker. Then on third and 11, Seahawks try to do a maybe a deep pass to DK Metcalf, but the Bengals looks like they run a zero blitz or an all-out blitz where they're going all man-to-man coverage across the board. They send Dax Hill, the safety, off the left edge. They have basically two people coming unblocked at Geno Smith. They have Trent Erickson coming off the left side, Dax Hill coming off the right side. Both those guys meet at Geno Smith and knock him over right as he's trying to throw the ball. Seahawks don't end up converting that, so they have to settle for a 55-yard field goal from Jason Myers, which is good right down the middle from him. So he shows why he's a $3 million a year field goal kicker in the NFL. No problem with a 55-yarder. But the Bengals are able to prevent the Seahawks from scoring a touchdown there, and that keeps it at 14-10 to 10 Bengals. Bengals took over with 43 seconds left to go in the first half, and they had two timeouts, and they're up 14-10. to 10, So I guess they were still trying to score some points and give themselves maybe a little bit of an extra cushion. Zach Taylor always talks about trying to score before halftime and then get the ball after halftime and score again, you can double up on points and double have two possessions in a row to kind of extend a lead out on the opponent. But in this scenario, they miss a pass to Jamar Chase on first down, and then they miss another pass to T. Higgins on second down. So it's two incomplete passes that only take six seconds off the clock. Then on third and 10, Joe Burrow, this is like, Vintage Joe Burrow, except it kind of ends the same way it did against the Cardinals, where Joe Burrow, he drops back, he feels some pressure. It looks like he's going to get sacked, but he's able to step out of it, rip his leg away from the Seattle defender, get away. He like spins out and then runs backwards, which is a little bit concerning. He's running backwards for like 10 yards, then he turns around. Starts running to the right, looking downfield. It's like, okay, we're going in the right direction at least this time. Instead of going like 10 yards backwards, we're at least looking downfield now. And then he throws it to Drew Sample for like a two-yard gain. So it was like all this running around, doing spin moves and running around backwards and to the side. And then just throw it to Drew Sample for no gain. (laughs) 
which if I were the Seattle defense, that is absolutely the best way to play that. If anybody is going to beat you, let it be Drew Sample. Like, you know, you got to guard Jamar Chase, number one, for sure. You got to guard T. Higgins. You got to guard Tyler Boyd. I wouldn't really guard Drew Sample. Just let him go. He's not going anywhere. If they decide to throw it to him, you have more than enough time to run over there and tackle him before he can do anything with it. So good play by the Seahawks on this one, just leaving Drew Sample totally alone by himself on the sidelines. Kind of almost like maybe they were baiting Joe Burrow to throw it to Drew Sample because they knew he couldn't do anything with the ball. Anyway, Bengals inevitably had to punt after this. Geno Smith... He couldn't really do anything. They only had 12 seconds, and he got sacked. So that was halftime. Bengals go into halftime up 14-10, to 10, and they get the ball back to start the second half. Bengals receive. It's a touchback for the opening kickoff. Bengals receive. They get a first down off of a defensive pass interference penalty. Then they get second and five at their own 40-yard line. Bengals try a similar pass that the Seahawks completed to Tyler Lockett on a fade up the right sideline to Jamar Chase. But this one is a little bit different. I, Geno Smith, like they said, Geno Smith dropped it into the bucket to Tyler Lockett perfectly. I don't know if that's maybe not what Joe Burrow was trying to do, but Joe Burrow, instead of dropping it in like a rainbow, he tries to throw more of a flat pass. It's like a back shoulder fade that we talked about in the preseason. All these commentators are always talking about how the back shoulder fade is so impossible to defend and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, in this one, I think either Joe Burrow was trying to throw a back shoulder fade and Jamar Chase got a little bit ahead of where he thought he was going to be, or it was just a bad underthrow by Joe Burrow. But in either case, Trey Brown by the Seahawks, he is in good position where he's right on Jamar Chase's back pocket, right in his hip pocket. He sees the ball out of the corner of his eye and is able to just turn around and the ball hits him right in the chest. He picks it off for an easy interception. So it was a little bit underthrown. You know, it needed to be at least a yard or two further out in front to give Jamar Chase any chance of catching it. I don't think Jamal Adams, the safety number 33, would have been in position to come over and break it up if it was a little bit deeper. And I don't know why, you know, it wasn't that far it was only like 30 yards down the field so it's not like Joe Burton didn't have enough arm to get it there he was trying to do like more of a finesse put it in the perfect position and like I said that that pass is good in certain situations but it's not as high percentage as people think and it's not like one of those situations where oh if my guy doesn't catch it it's just going to go out of bounds and be incomplete it can very easily be intercepted like we see in this situation part of it is the cornerback, Trey Brown, did a good job of widening Jamar Chase out to the sidelines in not necessarily pass interference, but you know he didn't let Jamar Chase squeeze him inside. He forced Jamar Chase all the way out to the sidelines to the point where there was no room on the sideline for Jamar Chase. He was pretty much running up the sideline with nowhere else to go, and that's why... Joe Burrow's pass maybe was a little bit inside or maybe wasn't where he wanted it exactly. I think it's more, it's probably Jamar Chase should have hugged it to the inside a little bit to give Joe Burrow more space to the outside to fit that ball, but it was maybe also a little bit inside. Hard to say. Either way, he got intercepted. Good play by the Seahawks. The Seahawks took over at their own 31-yard line with about 14 minutes left to go in the third quarter. 
They completed a short pass to Tyler Lockett. Then they picked up a decent gain to DK Metcalf. It was just a hitch route to the left sideline, but Cam Taylor-Britt missed the tackle, and they were able to pick up 18 yards and another first down. That's the thing about Cam Taylor-Britt is he, you know, he broke up the long pass. He had a couple good plays, but he also is prone to giving up some short passes and also some missed tackles every now and then. He's an inconsistent player. I would say, well, I, w- I will get to some of the Cam Taylor-Britt plays later in this game, but I would say overall... DJ Turner, the rookie out of Michigan, has been the most consistent cornerback for the Bengals. Even though he hasn't had any interceptions, hasn't made a lot of splash plays, he's been the most consistent in terms of he doesn't give up a lot of big plays either. But later in that drive, there was a face mask penalty on BJ Hill against Ken Walker that gave him Seahawks an extra 15 yards, got to about the Bengals' 30-yard line. Then the Seahawks completed a pass to the left side to Jake Bobo. Jake Bobo, the rookie out of UCLA. He's a big physical wide receiver, and he carried Bengals, DJ Turner, and Jermaine Pratt all the way down to about the four-yard line. Again, the Seahawks have it close down inside the Bengals' five-yard line, and it's looking like they may score a touchdown, but it was an odd play They had second and goal. They tried a rollout pass to the right where they faked the run to Kenneth Walker and Geno Smith was going to roll out. But Kenneth Walker tried to block Sam Hubbard, the defensive end. He tried to do a cut block on him, which if you're outside of the tackle box is illegal. And so he got a penalty. The thing that was strange was he didn't actually make contact with Sam Hubbard on his block at all. Sam Hubbard jumped over Ken Walker's block completely. And so it's a weird thing where they're calling a penalty based on intent, not on actually making the block. So you you would never see like illegal block in the back, but the guy didn't actually touch him. Or, you know, face mask, but he didn't actually touch his face mask. So I'm not sure how they called this an illegal block, but at the same time, he didn't actually touch Sam Hubbard at all. Kind of a strange call there, but that was a killer penalty because instead of the Seahawks having the ball at the three-yard line, second and goal, then that pushed them all the way back to their 18-yard line. Then on the very next play, a second and goal from Seattle's 18, Seahawks make another mental error where Geno Smith, he tries to throw a pass into double coverage to Jackson Smith and Jigba, number 11, the rookie out of Ohio State, but it's badly underthrown. Mike Hilton is able, very similar play that the Seahawks just made to the Bengals. Mike Hilton is trailing from behind. He's able to turn around and intercept the pass in front of Jackson Smith and Jigba. It it was a worse throw, I would say, by Geno Smith. Joe Burrows was maybe a little bit underthrown. Geno Smith was a lot thrown, and I really have no idea why he was trying to throw it there because Like I said, it's only second down. It's not like it was that critical that he needed to throw into the end zone and into double coverage. There was open receivers. He could have hit Kenneth Walker to the right, who had plenty of room to at least catch and run and maybe pick up, you know, eight or ten yards and get some of the yards back. They didn't need to go for the touchdown on this one play. And a a horrible decision by Geno, even worse, pass compounded that horrible decision gave the ball back to the Bengals at their own three-yard line. 
after the Bengals took over, they were able to pick up one first down, mostly on a run to Joe Mixon to just get it out of their own end zone. Then they completed an 11-yard pass to T. Higgins for another first down. But after that, they didn't do too much. After the Bengals pick up the first down to give themselves a little bit of breathing room, they tried to run maybe like a, I don't know what it was, maybe a play-action play or something <laughs> to the left. But Ted Karras gets beat off the snap by Jerron Reed. Barely gets a hand on him. He goes right around Ted Karras, sacks Joe Burrow for a two-yard loss. Bengals pick up a little bit back on second and 12. They give it to Chase Brown for a four-yard gain. But then on third and eight, Cordell Volson, he just gets steamrolled. Like we've seen number of plays from Cordell Volson. But number 55 for the Seahawks, Stremont Jones, he just comes bull rushes Cordell Volson and literally just shoves him out of the way. Shoves Cordell Volson onto the ground, just slings Cordell Volson out of the way like he's a sack of potatoes and goes and runs straight at Joe Burrow and sacks him just in about two seconds. Cordell Volson, ah, man, you know, it's a rough, rough day in the office for Cordell Volson sometimes. You know, he when he gets help from somebody else like Ted Karras, he can hold his own and, like, he can take part in a double team. But if you ask Cordell Volson to, like, block somebody one-on-one, he doesn't always turn out the best. It's just weird that two plays out of three, Seahawks were able to get a sack on Joe Burrow when most of the day the Bengals' offensive line had held up and were able to protect. But it was also a factor of Joe Burrow was getting the ball out of his hands quickly, like he has been doing most of the season, so the Seahawks weren't able to get home. And that maybe that's why this makes Geno look even that much slower when he's standing back there holding on to the ball for five, six, seven seconds at a time. By comparison, in the same game, you see Joe Burrow getting the ball out in two and a half, three seconds. It makes Geno look that much slower. On the Brad Robbins punt, he gets off a 50-yard punt, but DJ Dallas returns it for 23 yards to Cincinnati's 43. So it's a net of 27 on the punt, and Seahawks take over with good field position. They get a first down after a couple plays, then they try a pass deep to the right to DK Metcalf that goes out of bounds. And again, same kind of like where Chase was not having enough room on the sidelines, DK Metcalf was pretty much running almost up the sidelines, almost out of bounds. So when he caught the ball, he was already out of bounds. Even though he caught it, he had no opportunity to get any feet in bounds, an incomplete pass, and he ended up hurting his hip on the play. I couldn't tell if he landed on it wrong or somebody hit him, but he ended up having to go into the locker room. And I don't know what that means because he came back and played the rest of the game. So when you see a player go into the locker room for a hip injury and then he comes back, what are they doing in the locker room? Like, I'm assuming they gave him some kind of painkiller or some kind of injection or something, like if it was hurting, like they didn't tape it up or wrap it up or do anything. So I don't. other than some kind of painkiller, I'm assuming that's what they were doing, just like shooting him up with some kind of painkiller injection so he could play the rest of the game and not feel it. But when he went out on that play, the Seahawks' next play completed a deep pass to Jake Bobo again, 20 yards and a first down on this play. Dax Hill came up and hit Bobo in the helmet, helmet to helmet. Every referee almost on the field threw the flag. It was like immediate flags everywhere. 
So Dax Hill is probably going to get a fine from the NFL for that unnecessary roughness penalty. So on top of the long pass, they added the penalty, gave the Seahawks the ball at the Bengals' five-yard line, first and goal from the five. But the Bengals' defense, they do their typical bend but don't break, as they have done at the end of last year and into this year. They hold Kenneth Walker on two carries to zero yards. Basically, you got one yard and the negative one yard. And, you know, it's hard for me to say. It didn't look like the line was opening up that big a hole. But again, when you're down inside the five-yard line, I wish Kenneth Walker would do less dancing and more just straight ahead, put a shoulder in and push behind your offensive line. You know, the the Eagles do the Jalen Hurts brotherly shove, tush push, whatever you want to call it, where everybody just gets in behind the quarterback, the ball carrier, and just push ahead all together as one mass to, you know, one giant force together. I don't know why Seahawks didn't do that. There was more like spread everybody out, Kenneth Walker dancing around in the backfield and get tackled for no gain. Anyway, on third and goal, they tried a quick out past Tyler Lockett, covered one-on-one by Cam Taylor Britt. Cam Taylor Britt broke up the pass at the point of contact so that Tyler Lockett couldn't make the catch. It looked to me like a questionable call. If I were a Seahawks fan, I would have said that that was defensive holding, if not pass interference. It wouldn't really make any difference. It was in the end zone, so it would have been a first automatic first down for the Seahawks. But it looked like Cam Taylor Britt had both hands wrapped around Tyler Lockett's waist the whole time and was holding him, pulling him back, and used used his hands to, you know, prevent Tyler Lockett from moving out and getting the ball. I don't know why the referee, because there was two referees looking at it. He definitely had his hands on him. I don't know if they just decided that it was not enough contact to warrant drawing the flag in that situation, but I don't know. It's kind of one of those where it was, I don't, I don't know. It, I'm glad they didn't call it, but I could see where if I was a Seahawks fan, I would definitely be upset that it was not called. I guess they would say, maybe the referees would say, because he didn't pull or twist or like move him. He just had his hands on his hips and, you know, on his sides. But I don't know. It seemed like a lot of contact to me. Anyway, the Seahawks ended up settling for 23-yard field goal to bring themselves within one point and make it 14 13 with two and a half minutes left to go in the third quarter. Bengals receive the kickoff, short run to Joe Mixon on first down. Then second and five, we see Joe Burrow scramble out to the right. And this is by far the fastest Joe Burrow has run in a game. Like you could just tell he was running at top speed. He was, a, it was a full flat out sprint as in the other games, it looked like more of an 80% stride. This was our, you know, Joe Burrow at the Joe Burrow that we know. And I think they said in the stadium they put up the fastest ball carriers of the game. And Joe Burrow was on the list at 19 miles an hour. For Joe Burrow, 19 miles an hour is pretty fast. He's not Jamar Chase who got into the 21 and a half mile an hour range. Joe Burrow is more, you know, 20 is probably going to be where Joe Burrow would max out even on a good day. So 19 miles an hour from Joe Burrow, I'll take that. Unfortunately, they don't give out extra points or yards for running fast. So it was just a first down 
and Bengals ended up sputtering out on that drive. They got it to a third and one, and Joe Burrow tried to go up the middle, but Jordan Brooks and Jerron Reed for the Seahawks stopped, and the Bengals couldn't get any push up front from their interior offensive lineman. And Joe Mixon tried to go up over the top, but he got stopped before he could get it anywhere. So Bengals ended up having to punt again. It was a 40-yard punt, fair catch, down to the Seahawks' 16-yard line. Seahawks take over with 14 minutes left. They're trailing by one point to the Bengals. Bengals up 14-13. Seahawks take over on the next drive, and on this drive, second and nine, Geno Smith completes the pass to Jackson Smith and Jigba for 18 yards across the middle. Just kind of found a soft spot in the Bengals' zone defense, and Geno Smith got a good pass to it. Smith and Jigba has been kind of quiet throughout this day. He had a few passes he's been out there but didn't hear too much from him he didn't get a lot of targets either just throughout the game I was trying to watch him when I went back and watched it a little bit more and he just doesn't look that fast like I know he didn't run a fast 40 yard dash coming out in the combine and stuff but like just watching him on tape he just looks kind of slow compared to all the other receivers out there he doesn't have like a burst when he gets off the line he's just kind of a little sluggish so I don't know if I'm just, you know, maybe I'm just not used to the way he runs or, you know, maybe I can't really see it that well on tape, but it doesn't look like he gets great burst off the line of scrimmage. Maybe it's more of a, a, he's a better precise route runner down the field. And that's the thing you can't really see on television. The guys kind of disappear off the screen and the finer parts of their route running is lost a lot of times, unless you go back and watch the all 22. But even then, I don't know. I just didn't see that much speed in the Smith and Jigba game. After they pick up that first down, they had second and nine from the 36. They tried to go play action. I guess they were trying to go deep to DK Metcalf. I'm not exactly sure what happened, but it looked like DK Metcalf just kind of stopped running after about 10 yards. And Cam Taylor Britt was in man-to-man coverage. He kept running to where Geno Smith threw the ball. Geno Smith was trying to throw it to DK Metcalf, who stopped running. And so... Instead of a Seahawks receiver there, it was just Cam Taylor Britt able to just catch the ball by himself and not have any interference. And then he had a good presence of mind to get up as soon as he caught the ball because he wasn't down, he wasn't touched down. And before anybody could tackle him, he returned it for another 24 yards to the Seahawks 34. Not only did Cam Taylor Britt intercept the ball, get the ball back, but he picked up yardage on the return, put the Bengals in great field position going into this. Now, I got to wonder, you know, what did they say to DK Metcalf after this? What was he trying to do on this play? It looked like he just kind of ran down the field and then gave up. And he didn't even make the tackle. That's the worst part is he ran on the field, just started jogging, and then let Cam Taylor Taylor Britt make the interception, and then he didn't even tackle him. Terrible effort by DK Metcalf on that play. Great effort by Cam Taylor Britt. Unfortunately for the Bengals, after they got the ball back at the Seahawks' 34-yard line, they did absolutely nothing with it. Three incomplete passes in a row. First down was an incomplete to Jamar Chase to the left, where it looked like it was a little bit behind him. And he had been behind Chase and T. Higgins in the first half also on a couple plays. Then second and 10, Incomplete pass across the middle to Jamar Chase where Devin Witherspoon 
the cornerback who was the first-round pick everybody was talking about matching up on Chase, he was trailing Jamar Chase. He got in such good position that Joe Burrow hit Witherspoon in the back with the ball. So Witherspoon was in such good position guarding Jamar Chase, even though he couldn't see where the ball was, didn't necessarily know that it was coming, he put himself in a place to block it just by the fact that he couldn't, you know, Joe Burrow can't throw through him. So <laughs> it was good defense. You know, it's kind of a scary situation when you, as a quarterback, hit a defender in the back with the ball because they easily could have been intercepted if the guy would have just turned around. You know, I guess you have faith that the guy won't turn around because he's, you know, in that in that angle guarding Jamar Chase, that Jamar Chase is somehow going to catch it. It's just kind of a something you don't, often see it's not that frequent that some guy just happens to get hit in the back but that's what happened. i thought it hit him in the head initially but it literally hit him right in the back <laughs> then third and ten they had irv smith split out wide to the left he ran like a five yard in route i don't know if he was supposed to stop or if what the deal was if burrow was behind him or if he ran the wrong route but either way it was off target pass went through irv smith's hands you could call it a drop, but it was pretty far behind him. I mean, Irv Smith has not been impressing anybody at all. I think he had one catch for five yards in this game on two targets. Not really blowing the doors off so far this season is Irv Smith in the tight end room for the Bengals. So they ended up having to settle for a 52-yard field goal. They got it at the 34, did absolutely nothing with it offensively, three straight incomplete passes. But luckily, they had Evan McPherson to nail that 52-yard field goal to extend their lead to 17-13. to That makes it a four-point game instead of a one-point game. And the four is especially important instead of three because they need a touchdown. A field goal doesn't do the Seahawks any good in terms of they wouldn't be able to tie or beat the Bengals with only a field goal. They need a touchdown or two field goals. After the touchback, Seahawks take over at their own 25-yard line with about 12 minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. First and 10, they throw incomplete, but they pick up a roughing the passer penalty on DJ Reader. DJ Reader, it's a tough call. He basically launched out and dove at Geno Smith and landed on him with all of his weight. And it's a penalty because you can't come down full force on the quarterback with all your weight without bracing yourself or anything. You're supposed to roll off to the side or put your hands out so you don't just, you know, if you're a 300-pound guy, just jumping on top of somebody else with your full weight can cause a lot of injuries, obviously. So they don't want guys doing that. For DJ Reader, he was arguing that you know there was nowhere else he could go. But if you look at it, he pretty much just, like I said, just launched out and dove 100% at it. Like back in the old days, you could get away with that kind of stuff. But they don't want to see quarterbacks getting completely smashed like Tony Siragusa style anymore. That's how a lot of players in quarterback, especially because the quarterbacks get paid so much money. You don't want the quarterback just being like a human pinata back there. So I understand why they threw the penalty on DJ Reader. On the next play, the Seahawks ended up getting an illegal block in the back penalty on Kenneth Walker. This is another illegal block by Kenneth Walker in a bad situation where they had a illegal block below the waist on Kenneth Walker on the goal line on Sam Hubbard previously. Now we got illegal block in the back on him. Wipes out a good gain. So they had pushed him back 
to first and 15 at their own 35. They weren't able to overcome that, and they ended up not converting the first down, had to punt the ball back away. Bengals take over from their own 14-yard line with about 9 minutes and 45 seconds left to go in the fourth quarter. They pick up one first down off of a pass to Jamar Chase, short pass, 13 yards. They run a couple more plays, but then Joe Burrow gets sacked on second and five for a loss of seven yards, where it looked like the Seahawks, they only rushed four guys, but they were showing more that could possibly blitz before the play. So maybe the Bengals offensive line got a little bit confused. They tried to overcompensate to the left and let the guy on the right go. So Boye Mafe, the end for the Seahawks. Jonah Williams didn't even put a hand on him, not a finger. He came in completely untouched and sacked Joe Burrow in about two seconds flat. Like, I tried to time it, and Joe Burrow had absolutely no chance on that play. It was two seconds, sack. Obviously, that killed the drive. They Third and 12, they tried a swing pass out to Travion Williams, who ended up losing two yards. I don't know why... Travion Williams is the third down back. Can we retire Travion? I know he's a good pass blocker, but he is not going to break any tackles. Jamal Adams was the guy guarding Travion Williams. You think, I mean, Jamal Adams was a first round pick. Like I said, Travion Williams was sixth round pick for a reason. I think he might have been, was he a sixth round or seventh round? Not very high. Needless to say, Travion Williams has done next to nothing in his NFL career. I don't know why we keep putting him out here as the third down back expecting anything different. Anyway, they do not convert on the Travion Williams. It's the same thing with Drew Sample. Drew Sample and Travion Williams, third and long, please no. Anybody else? Bengals have to settle for a Brad Robbins 38-yard punt on fourth and 15. So just when you need to flip the field, get some good field position, we get a 38-yard punt out of Brad Robbins. It's a fair catch. Again, no return, so it could have been worse, but we were looking for a better field position because the Seahawks take over at their own 36. They only have to go 64 yards to score a touchdown. Seahawks take over. They get a short gain on first and 10. Then second and six, Geno Smith completes the pass deep on the left sideline to DK Metcalf who beat Cam Taylor-Britt off the line of scrimmage. It was just a deep fade before Dax Hill, the safety, could get over and break up the pass. This time, it was not underthrown by Geno Smith, so good pass by him, good catch by DK Metcalf. It, again, I don't know why they have to complete them so far along the sidelines that as soon as DK Metcalf caught it, he immediately ran out of bounds. Like If he could have stayed in bound, it could have been maybe a touchdown or a much bigger gain, but... For whatever reason, like they they complete these passes just tiptoeing along the sidelines, don't give themselves any margin for error. But hey, it's a 30-yard pass. I'm sure they'll take it. They continue to get a couple more first downs, move the ball into the Bengals territory. They had Geno scramble a couple times. He scrambled for 11 yards on a pass play, and then they had a design run. Geno picking up a little bit more yards, but they got it down to the seven-yard line. They had first and goal at the seven-yard line. They're down four, and there's three and a half minutes left to go in the game. So down by four, three and a half minutes left. They need a touchdown. First and goal, 
Geno Smith takes a sack for 12 yards, pushing them back to the 19-yard line. That is the worst play in that scenario that you could possibly do. Anything, incomplete pass, you know, even a sack for five yards wouldn't be that bad. But Geno Smith, and he has done this a number of times. He got away with it once in this game. But I think I've seen him in, in previous games. Maybe it was the first game of their season against the 49ers. He took a big, bad sack like this. But, you know, field position is the most important thing. When you have it first and goal, you're already close to the goal line. You can't lose 12 yards and push yourself that far back. And the thing that was frustrating if you're a Seahawks fan was Geno had room, not a lot of room, but he had an opportunity to step up in the pocket. The Bengals' defensive ends, Trey Hendrickson and Sam Hubbard, were closing in on him from either side, from the left and the right. But he had some space up the middle where if he had stepped up, stepped through the the traffic, he could have gotten away and made something happen. But for whatever reason, instead of that, he tried to spin backwards and he spun himself right into Sam Hubbard. So even if he had just stepped up and got tripped up and still got sacked, he would have lost maybe two or three yards. He wouldn't have lost 12 yards. That's a horrible mental error, kind of like the interception that he threw previously. Another mental error by Geno Smith that is hurting the team in this situation. They picked up a little bit of it back to a pass to Jackson Smith and Jigba over the middle for 13 yards, so they got down to the six. But then it's 2.08 left, not quite the two-minute warning. Fourth and goal, Seahawks get sacked. Geno Smith, he's standing back there. You know, it's fourth and goal. You have to throw the ball. You can't take a sack. I don't know why. You know, obviously he knows that, but he had time. He, He stood back there, held it, pump faked, and it wasn't as bad. Like, he didn't hold it. He didn't have time to hold it for seven seconds, but this was about... Four and a half, five seconds maybe of him not throwing it and then getting sacked. And, you know, it's fourth goal, fourth and goal, as frustrating as a fan, as a coach, as a player, as anybody who is rooting for the Seahawks, you're like, you know, just throw the ball to anybody. Even if it gets intercepted, at least that would be better than taking a sack. You have no chance to score any points if you get sacked. At least maybe it gets tipped up in the air. You never know what could happen. Maybe a penalty something could possibly, you know, go your way if you just throw the ball. He didn't even throw it. And this entire time as a Bengals fan, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, they're not they're never more than one or four points ahead for this entire second half of the game and the Seahawks have had so many opportunities that goal to go and they just can't score touchdowns. And credit to Sam Hubbard, BJ Hill, DJ Reader, Trey Hendrickson, all those guys on the defensive line, when they needed to come up with a big stop in the big moment of the game, they came through. And number 74 for the Seahawks on the right tackle, he kind of lost the plot. He kind of fell off in this game. I don't know if he was getting tired or what, but towards the end of the game, especially in the fourth quarter, Sam Hubbard was having his way, doing whatever he wanted. He was doing swipe the hands down, Power moves, rip moves, all kinds of moves too. They did a, later in the game, they did a a stunt around, but Sam Hubbard was abusing the right tackle for the Seahawks towards the end of this game, especially. Bengals took over and 
they had the opportunity to close out the game. If they could keep a drive going, keep the ball away from the Seahawks and just get a drive, even if they didn't score points, just keep getting first downs after first downs. Seahawks would run out of time, run out of timeouts to be able to stop the clock. And that's all the Bengals were really looking for. Unfortunately, I don't know what they were doing on first down. They threw incomplete pass, looked like a complete throwaway. Almost looked like it could have been intentional grounding, but they ran one running play to Joe Mixon for a short gain. Then they tried a deep pass to T. Higgins up the right sideline. This is a bad play for T. in a number of ways. Number one, he didn't catch the ball. Uh, Trey Brown, the Seahawks defender, number 22, was able to get his hands in and break up the pass to prevent T. from catching it. But also on this play, T. Higgins got called for offensive pass interference, where he did a push-off into the chest of the Seahawks defender before the ball got there. So two negatives on that play for T. Higgins. Not only did he not catch the pass, but either way, it wouldn't have counted because he got the offensive pass interference penalty on him. And T. has been known to do this, even though it didn't get called in the Super Bowl. Everybody saw T. Higgins grab and pull Jalen Ramsey down while the ball was on the way for that touchdown. And all the good ones do this. Like we said, Jamar Chase did a similar thing that he got away with earlier in the game. And around the league, a lot of the best receivers, like DJ Moore for the Bears, on that night where he was going crazy, he had all those hitches converted to touchdowns. I mean, really what he was doing was pushing off on a lot of those defenders. He would run up to them, push them, and that's a good way to get separation. If you push the push the guy three yards away from you, then you got three yards of separation right there. And that's pretty much what he was doing. And for whatever reason, the referees were not calling offensive pass interference on DJ Moore in that game. This is, I mean, this was a less egregious penalty to me, but it was a push off by T Higgins. So it was the right call. Didn't really end up mattering because he didn't catch the ball either way. So it would have been incomplete. Seattle ended up declining that penalty. So it would bring up a fourth down and, Brad Robbins ended up punting it back to the Seahawks with a minute 39 left to go in the game. Seahawks pick up a first down. They get a short pass and then a penalty offsides on Sam Hubbard. Then they get a 36-yard pass over the middle to Tyler Lockett. Nick Scott is beaten as the safety in the zone. I mean, it's hard to cover Tyler Lockett, but 36 yards when there's only a minute and a half left to go in the game, it's a big spot. It's a tough play for the Bengals to give up there. Seahawks get it all the way down to the 11. Now they run Kenneth Walker up the middle for two yards. I guess they're maybe trying to catch the Bengals off guard there because it's under a minute. Seahawks do have one timeout left. So they, maybe, maybe the Seahawks were also thinking, okay, we want to score a touchdown here, but we don't want to leave any time left on the clock. Maybe that's why they did a running play, but it didn't work, and it only got them two yards. They tried another pass that went incomplete, so that brought up fourth and goal from the nine-yard line. On this fourth and goal, the Bengals' defensive line came up big again. This is where B.J. Hill and Sam Hubbard ran the T.E. stunt, where the tackle goes to the outside, the defensive end wraps around to the inside. Sam Hubbard came up around the middle. B.J. Hill beat his man. I think they gave the sack to B.J. Hill, but both of them were kind of in on it. I think, actually, 
Geno Smith got the ball away technically. It wasn't a sack, but he was in the grasp. There were a lot of plays like that throughout this game where even though they didn't count them as sacks, Geno Smith was getting wrapped up, about to get sacked, and threw an incomplete pass that just was basically a throwaway that ended at somebody's feet, fell incomplete. It was it wasn't going to be incomplete, it was going to be a sack. But that closed out the game with that incomplete pass on fourth down. Bengals got the ball. They just had to take a knee and the game was over. Bengals win 17-13. If you go back and look at those past couple possessions for the Seahawks, they did have the opportunity because they failed on two fourth downs in a row. If they had, you know, hindsight's 20-20, if they had known they were going to have two possessions within the last five minutes, they could have kicked two field goals. So the first one would have got to 16 if they had it with a minute and a half left to go in 16 to 17. Instead of going for it there, they could have kicked another field goal to get it to 19 to 17. But since they were down by four with so little time left, it's hard to really fault Pete Carroll and say he should have counted on his defense stopping the Bengals offense and keeping the score within one so they could get the ball back and score another field goal. I totally understand where it's that late in the game, you are down by four points, got to go for the touchdown, not the field goal. I get it. You know, you, you want to assume that you're going to get the touchdown, not have to rely on your defense to stop them quickly on a three and out like they ended up doing and get the ball back for two field goals in that short amount of time. Now the Bengals are 3 and 3 going into their bye week after this win. Seahawks are 3 and 2. For the Bengals, they can feel a lot better than they would have if they had lost, certainly. They got the back to 500, they don't have a losing record. There's more optimism. One thing that was the negative coming out of this game was Orlando Brown, their left tackle, free agent that they signed for big money in the offseason. He did not complete this game. He went out with a groin injury about two-thirds of the way through the game replaced by Cody Ford at left tackle. Cody Ford was a former second-round pick. I think he played with the Bills before this and didn't do too great, obviously, because they cut him, got signed by the Bengals. Cody Ford and Orlando Brown were former college teammates at Oklahoma. I think Cody Ford probably played with Joe Mixon there too, but he did okay. He wasn't like a noticeable liability for the Bengals. They didn't score any points, didn't move the ball in the second half. I wouldn't say that Cody Ford was necessarily sticking out as giving up a lot of pressures or sacks from his position. It was interesting to see because it was right after Cordell Volson got mauled and steamrolled and thrown out of the way that they came back and they saw Cody Ford on the field. So Charles Davis immediately assumed that the Bengals must have benched Cordell Volson. He was like, oh, you see Cody, Cody Ford is out there. Cordell Volson must be, and then he stopped because he saw Cordell Volson standing right next to him. So he's like, oh, wait, uh, Cordell Volson's out there too? Okay, never mind. So yeah, it's like, as a fan, I was thinking the same thing Charles Davis was, where I was like, all right, yeah, that makes sense. Get Cordell Volson out of there. He just gave up a sack and he looked horrible. So maybe let's just try out Cody Ford. But then it was like, no, actually, Cordell Volson's still in there. And one of your best offensive linemen is getting replaced by his backup. So it went from like maybe a potential good thing to definitely a bad thing. So that's going to be something to watch. Hopefully with the bye week, we should see Orlando Brown have plenty of time to recuperate and get back 
for the next game at the San Francisco 49ers. But that's something to keep an eye on throughout the season because we did see Orlando Brown pop up on the injury report. I think it was a couple weeks ago. He was maybe a limited participant in practice with the groin injury, but he did end up playing in the game. It didn't keep him out for anything, but hopefully that doesn't linger and keep him out for any games later in the season. If we compare the team statistics, like I said, the Seahawks dominated in every statistical category except for red zone, pretty much. And that's really the most important. The only thing that matters is the score. And scoring in the red zone is where it comes in most important. So it was good that the Bengals were 2-for-2 and the Seahawks were 1-for-5 in terms of converting red zone opportunities into touchdowns. That was the biggest thing. Bengals had two touchdowns, one field goal. Seahawks had one touchdown, two field goals. That was a whole difference in the game because the Bengals didn't have that many opportunities to score touchdowns, but when they did, they made the most of it. Seahawks had plenty of opportunities for touchdowns, and they could not convert. And that's what had to be so frustrating for Seahawks fans and everybody in the team, I'm sure, after this game is they must have been thinking, we had so many opportunities. They probably thought instead of scoring 13 points, they should have scored 21 or 28 or 24 points at least and could have beaten the Bengals easily if they would have just converted any of those into touchdowns. But we see the Seahawks had 24 first downs to the Bengals' 15. Seahawks had 13 passing, 6 rushing, 5 first downs from penalties that the Seahawks have. That's a lot of first downs to get off of penalties. So Bengals need to clean that up. Can't give 5 free first downs basically throughout the game. But if we look at fourth down efficiency, 0 for 2 for the Seahawks. We look at third down efficiency, Seahawks had the edge there. Neither team was great, but Seahawks were 5 out of 12 on third down. Bengals only 3 out of 11. I think the Bengals, I don't know if they converted very many third downs in the second half, if at all. But the big thing was Seahawks 0 for 2 on fourth downs. And those were the last two drives where they needed to score touchdowns and came up with nothing on either one. Seahawks ran more plays than the Bengals, 70 to 53. And total yards, huge discrepancy. Seahawks had 381 yards to the Bengals, 214. And that is even below the Bengals' average yards for a season. It's going to take them down. Bengals are going to be in the bottom three in terms of total yards in the NFL as a team, and they're not getting any better. Seahawks had more yards per play than the Bengals, 5.4 to 4.0. Seahawks had more passing yards, 294 to 168. Seahawks definitely had more rushing yards. This is kind of embarrassing for the Bengals, honestly. Seahawks, 87 rushing yards. Okay, that's better than what the Bengals have been averaging. I think they've been averaging about giving up 140 yards of rushing by the Bengals' defense per game. But then Bengals only managed 46 yards of rushing the whole day on 15 carries. Neither team was especially efficient. Seahawks had 3.5 yards. Bengals had 3.1 yards. So just barely over 3. You know, you'd like to see 4 yards per carry, if not more than that. But for the Bengals, that's pretty pathetic. 15 rushes for 46 yards I mean you know like the passing game 168 yards not great either but 46 yards for the entire game 
that's pretty pitiful. It, I mean, like we said, it, there's going to be games, and there's going to be situations where they need to run the ball to run the clock out. You know, in, in this game, it would have been nice if they could have had a nice extended drive where run the clock out by running Joe Mixon, getting first downs, keeping the ball on the ground, grind out the clock. But the Bengals are so reliant on these little dink and dunk five-yard passes that if they get into a situation where they need to run, I'm not sure they can. Some of the statistics that went for the Bengals, like we said, in the red zone, Seahawks were only one for five. Bengals were two for two. Seahawks also committed a lot more penalties, even though the Bengals Bengals only committed five penalties, but they all turned into first downs for the Seahawks. There were five penalties for 43 yards. Seahawks committed seven penalties for 64 yards, but not as many of them turned into first downs for the Bengals. Bengals only had two first downs off penalties compared to five for the Seahawks. Now, turnover battle was one thing that went for the Bengals' favor also. That's one of the things that contributes to winning games, who has more possessions, and who can do more with the possessions. Seahawks had two interceptions. Bengals only had one. Both the quarterbacks were at fault, I think, in all three of these interceptions. Just bad passes. In terms of time of possession, Seahawks also had the huge advantage. 34 minutes for the Seahawks to 26 minutes for the Bengals. So Seahawks held the ball eight minutes longer than the Bengals did. They just weren't able to do that much with it. Not that the Bengals were doing that much with it either. They just did that much more than the Seahawks. Just that little bit more that's necessary. So after the game, Joe Burrow said, there's nothing to apologize. He's not going to apologize for a win. You know, he did whatever he needed to do to get the win. So that was good enough. Obviously, he would like to have a better day. And, you know, he wasn't that bad. He had two touchdown passes, one interception. But in terms of the passing yardage, wasn't that great. They didn't do much in terms of scoring after halftime. They only put up three points. And that three points came off of the Cam Taylor Britt interception and run back all the way to like the 35 yard line so in terms of second half offensive productivity as an offense Joe Burrow as the leader of the offense knows that wasn't good enough comparing the two quarterbacks statistically neither one did especially well Geno Smith was 27 of 41 for 323 yards no touchdowns two interceptions four sacks Quarterback rating of 42 and a passer rating of 69. Joe Burrow was 24 of 35, 185 yards, but two touchdowns, one interception, three sacks, QBR of 36 and a passer rating of 88. It's kind of surprising to see that big of a discrepancy in the yardage between the two quarterbacks because in terms of completions, Gino completed 27, Joe Burrow completed 24, not that far off, but Gino was averaging 7.9 yards per pass attempt, and Joe Burrow was only averaging 5.3, 8 to 5.3, basically 2.5 yards per attempt farther than Joe Burrow. And they didn't really have too much success on any deep passes. The only pass they completed, I think they only attempted one pass over 20 yards, which was intercepted along the right sideline. Other than that, they may have completed 
I think the one pass to Jamar Chase on the left sideline was more of a catch and run. He caught it about 20 yards down the field and picked up another 10 to get a total of 30. But they didn't throw downfield, basically. The Bengals did not test the Seattle defense deep for whatever reason. Everything was within 5 to 10 yards of the line of scrimmage or behind the line of scrimmage in a lot of cases. And that's been kind of the MO for the Bengals all season. But you wish they would stretch the defense a little bit more or I'm not sure why they don't. Maybe, you know, the Seattle defense has good safeties and they don't think they want to risk throwing it deep. But we saw it is possible with some good game planning and strategizing to get Jamar Chase open deep down the field like they did against the Cardinals. In terms of the running backs, Kenneth Walker for the Seahawks had 62 yards on 19 carries, one touchdown, long of 21, and an average of 3.3 per carry. Geno Smith also chipped in 20 yards on four carries with a long of 11. Joe Mixon for the Bengals had 38 yards on 12 carries, no touchdowns, long of five, and an average of 3.2. So when you compare those two runners, they were pretty much how I was talking about in the preview, where Kenneth Walker was, I guess you'd call him patient. I don't even know if that's the right word for it, but he's always trying to look for the bounce outside move, break it one way or the other. He's not very much of a straight ahead plow forward runner, which Joe Mixon is. Kenneth Walker, he had that long of 21. That wasn't really a break outside. That was just good blocking, good play design. It got him out into the open field and he was able to advance for 21. But he had a couple longer runs of like eight or nine yards that Joe Mixon wasn't able to get. But he also had some losses and some short yards where he wasn't able to gain anything. And if you look at the next-gen stats comparing these two, Joe Mixon, he had 12 carries, 38 yards, long of five. But most of his carries were like, yeah, three yards, four yards, five yards, not losing any yards, not gaining a lot of yards, but just consistently grinding out tough, needed, very very much necessary yardage. And in next-gen stats, it put Joe Mixon as pretty much dead on his rushing yards over expected, meaning they have this you know formula to figure out how far away the defenders are, the situation, what play you're running to figure out how many yards you are expected to get on any particular running play. Joe Mixon was pretty much dead on zero yards over expected, meaning he got exactly as many yards as he would be expected to get. Kenneth Walker, on the other hand, had negative 22 rushing yards over expected, meaning even though he got 62 yards, you know, statistically, they would have expected him to gain 22 more. So he should have had 84 instead of 62. And that was one of the things I was kind of pointing out is this seemed like there was more yards out there for Kenneth Walker to get if he would have just pushed forward instead of dancing around so much in the backfield. In terms of the receiving game, Jamar Chase had a step back from where he was against the Cardinals. He had 13 targets, but only managed to catch six of them for 80 yards, no touchdowns, and a long of 31. Still a decent average per catch, 13.3 yards per catch for his six, but definitely the Seahawks were able to keep him in check as much as anybody can. You know, he's going to get his... But Devin Witherspoon, he broke up a number of passes against Jamar Chase where it was tight coverage. 
he either broke up the pass while it was in Jamar Chase's hands. They had guys getting in the way, intercepting passes, or just hitting them, putting their bodies in the way and getting hit in the back. We saw an efficient day from Tyler Boyd, seven catches on seven targets, but he only had 38 yards, long of nine, one touchdown, average of five and a half yards per catch for Tyler Boyd. So it's great that he got the touchdown, but not too much in terms of yards after the catch or downfield threat, more of a possession receiver. Joe Mixon was actually the third leading receiver for the Bengals. Three catches, 24 yards, long of 11. T. Higgins, another quiet day. He had that drop slash penalty and another one that went incomplete. So he only had two catches for 20 yards on four targets. Then a bunch of other guys had one catch, probably most notably Andre Yosivash, three-yard touchdown catch, second catch of his career and first touchdown of his career. For the Seahawks, their leading receiver was Tyler Lockett. He had six catches on eight targets for 94 yards, zero touchdowns, long of 36, average of 15.7 per catch. DK Metcalf, 10 targets, but only four receptions, so not a very efficient day. There was a lot of pass breakups, incomplete passes, going out of bounds for DK Metcalf, so not very efficient at all. Four catches, 69 yards, no touchdowns, Long of 30. I guess I should stop saying no touchdowns. Nobody had any touchdowns for the receivers on the Seahawks. Jackson, Smith, and Jigba. Four catches on five targets. 48 yards. Long of 18. Average 12 yards per catch. Jake Bobo. Two catches. 43 yards. Jackson, Smith, and Jigba. Again, I don't know. We'll have to see how his progress goes throughout the year. But I was unfortunately not that impressed with what I saw on film of him. I was expecting more of him coming out of Ohio State. he So far, he just doesn't seem to have the burst I was expecting. Defensively, Logan Wilson led the Bengals with 11 total tackles, 9 solo, 1 sack, 2 tackles for loss, QB hit. It didn't really show up that many. I mean, I guess you don't really notice when they're going for like 5 yards or 6 yards or 8 yards. Logan Wilson makes the tackle at the end of the play, but you know somebody's got to make those tackles. So it was good to see him. And he, he did get in there for that one sack. Dax Hill was making plays. He had eight total tackles, five solo, two passes defense. Cam Taylor Britt, seven total tackles, seven solo. But again, with Cam Taylor Britt, a lot of his tackles aren't coming up and making stops on like running backs at the line of scrimmage. It's more like somebody caught a pass in front of him and then he's coming in to make the tackle. But he did have three passes defended. So he had the long pass up the left sideline to DK Metcalf that he broke up. He had the pass along the goal line on the right side to Tyler Lockett that he broke up. And then, of course, the interception that he ran back for 23 yards. So three passes defense. Good game overall for Cam Taylor Britt. I still say, you know, he's inconsistent. So you can't let all the good plays just completely blind you to the fact that he gave up a lot of yards in the receiving game. He got beat by DK Metcalf a number of times in this game also. So it wasn't a complete victorious effort but Sam Hubbard Sam Hubbard always brings the effort he had five QB hits in this game Sam Hubbard along with one sack one tackle for a loss but Sam Hubbard was all over the quarterback bringing the pressure consistently he's kind of that guy he's got the strong motor he doesn't have a, a great move off the line of scrimmage like Trey Hendrickson where he's just beating guys but he's just he's persistent he sticks with the play 
if the quarterback tries to scramble around, Sam Hubbard is going to be chasing him no matter what's going on. We also saw a number of tackles out of Jermaine Pratt, Mike Hilton. Mike Hilton also made that interception that was crucial. DJ Turner had a number of good tackles. Trey Hendrickson, again, was making himself known in the run game, not just in the pass game. We know, you know, he's got pressure on the quarterback every game, but he was also making tackles for loss on the running, and that's not something that Trey Hendrickson is known for. I haven't necessarily seen him. I always thought of Trey Hendrickson as more of a liability in the running game, but maybe that's something he wanted to put a point of emphasis on in the offseason to get better at because he's definitely shown that he's not just a walkover. Teams can just run past. It was also good to see the return of the defensive interior in terms of DJ Reader, BJ Hill, Josh Tupo making plays, making stops up the middle on run, making pressure on Geno Smith up the middle. So much better than we had seen previously. We hadn't heard a lot from DJ Reader and BJ Hill in most of these games leading into this. So finally, some action from the guys up front. In terms of the Seahawks defense, their defensive secondary, probably not surprisingly, was a strong point for their team, especially considering that those are some of their most highly paid guys. Quandre Diggs led the team with eight tackles. Jordan Brooks, their middle linebacker, one of their middle linebackers, had seven total tackles. Jamal Adams had four tackles and a tackle for loss. Devin Witherspoon was in on three pass breakups, and he also had four tackles. So Devin Witherspoon, keep an eye on him. I don't know if he's going to be in Pro Bowl consideration this year as maybe a nickel cornerback, but he had a pick six against the Giants. He had a number of pass breakups against Jamar Chase, who's one of the top receivers in the league, and he's a rookie, Devin Witherspoon, out of Illinois. Keep an eye on him. Kicking Seattle, Jason Myers was two for two, one for one on extra points with a long of 55. Evan McPherson for the Bengals, one for one from 52 yards and two for two on extra points. And in the punting game, hey, we could say Brad Robbins won over one of the best punters in the league in terms of distance, but Michael Dixon was also punting most of the time from like the 50-yard line. So he was punting more for direction and field position. <laughs> but hey, Brad Robbins got off a long of 55, average of 45.6 yards per punt. Brad Robbins pushing that average up way over 40 yards. Of note, in this game, two Bengals had birthdays, Andre Yosivash and Cam Taylor-Britt, and they both had big plays in this game. Cam Taylor-Britt had the interception and the run back. Andre Yosivash scored his first touchdown on his birthday, and the, the reporters were joking around with him, you know, saying, oh, you got to go get a table at Jeff Ruby Steakhouse now for that touchdown on your birthday. Andre said it was a good birthday present. He can't remember a whole lot of better ones as a young kid, but get a touchdown from Joe Burrow on your birthday is a pretty good way to celebrate. Now, after this game, it was tough to figure out how to really feel as a fan, as an observer, because going into this game, you know, the Bengals had a losing record. They, they needed wins, and so it was good to get a win. Obviously, it's good whenever you get a win. It's hard to win in the NFL, like they say, so you got to appreciate all of them. But the questions after the game were like, Zach, you know, Zach Taylor, what happened to the offense? Why did the offense stall out in the second half and not move the ball at all? You know, they had come out first half, scored two touchdowns on their first two drives, 
then after that, they didn't really move the ball at all. Even on the field goal that they got in the second half, they went three plays, didn't move the ball even a yard. Had it was you know it was fourth and ten when they kicked the field goal, so the offense did not produce anything after the first two drives. After the game, they asked Zach Taylor what happened. He said, "Typical. Well, we'll have to go watch the tape." Because that's what they always say after the games. You never know. We'll just go watch the tape. Of course, the next day, after watching the tape, they asked Zach Taylor, okay, Zach, you've watched the tape. What happened? And as typically Zach Taylor does, he gave a complete non-answer. He said absolutely nothing, as all of these NFL head coaches do. I mean, you're not going to realistically expect the coach to come out and say, well, they did this and they did this and this and that, and this is exactly what stopped us because you can't say that because then every other team will just copy that. So you don't want to say exactly what your weakness is. I understand that. But at the same time, like these coaches, when they just say absolutely nothing, like Zach Taylor, his answer was, well, we had a three and out and we had a penalty and we had this. And he just went through the list of sequence of things that happened in the game. It's like, yes, Zach, we all watched the game. We know what happened? We're asking, why did it happen? He never says why. So, you know, what's, what's the point of asking Zach Taylor any questions ever? I don't know. It didn't make you feel good. I think if it had been reversed, like if the Bengals had not scored any points up until the end of the game, and then all of a sudden they scored like two touchdowns in a row, then it would have been like the story would have been completely reversed of, Oh, you know, the Bengals get off to a slow start, but then offensive explosion leads the charge. Bengals figure it out. They change and adapt, make the adjustments they needed to make, and finally win the game. But no, it was like they came out to a good start, got off hot, did everything they needed to do, and then hung on and barely just won the game and didn't lose. And it's just a weird, even though, yeah, so it's just as a Seahawks fan, Looking at those statistics and watching the game, I'm sure the Seahawks fans are thinking it's really frustrating to lose the game, but at least they felt good about, man, we could move the ball up and down the field on those guys. We stopped their offense, prevented them from scoring points for the most part. Like if you hold an NFL team to 17 points, that's not bad. You should win mostly. Like you expect your offense to be able to score more than 17 points on average in most games. And if they can't, then, you know, that's the offense's fault. It's, it's, it's at least not a losing effort by the defense. If anything, you got to put it on the offense, say they had plenty of opportunities. If you're talking about the Seahawks, Seahawks had plenty of opportunities and just didn't capitalize on any of them. So I went and I watched the Pete Carroll show. Pete Carroll has a radio show that he does. And he was talking about the game and he was saying how weird it was. He was like, oh, you know, I feel totally different after this loss than the loss that they had at the beginning of the season where they, the Seahawks, they lost to the Rams, wasn't really that close. Felt like, oh man, you know, we got beat. Game against the Bengals, he was saying like, you know, we played actually pretty well. The only thing that didn't go our way was the score, like the final score. We just didn't score enough points. But otherwise, like offense played pretty well. Defense played pretty well. Special teams was good. Just a matter of not finishing those drives in the goal line down near the red zone, scoring touchdowns, converting instead of coming away with field goals and interceptions, turnover on downs. They just really, Seahawks only had themselves to blame and shot themselves in the foot. It's If you're a Seahawks fan, you wouldn't say necessarily that the Bengals defense beat you or that Jamar Chase or Joe Burrow beat them. 
they would probably feel like they beat themselves. And for Bengals fans, it's tough to take. I mean, yeah, it's like a win, but Bengals had so many opportunities to put the game away. They had multiple chances where they had the ball near the end of the game. They just need to pick up a few first downs, you know, run the ball, run the clock out, soak the drives, and you can win the game. And they just couldn't do it. They kept having to punt, give the ball back away to the Seahawks, kept giving the Seahawks more and more chances. And that was frustrating because why can't they just put them away? It was like once they got a lead, the Bengals turtled up, went totally conservative or just couldn't get anything done. You know, I don't like they're still throwing the ball. They just couldn't complete any passes, couldn't get anything going in the running game. Nothing was working for the Bengals. And that was what's really frustrating is you figure, no, they didn't make the adjustments. The Seahawks made the adjustments. The Bengals didn't. But but at the same time, which one was worse? Because the Seahawks also scored only three points in the second half. And part of that was because they had all those turnovers, interceptions that negated points. Bad sacks by Geno Smith took away points. It was more self-inflicted by the Seahawks of not being able to score points, giving the ball away when they should have been scoring. Overall, going into this by week, week seven, we can at least feel good knowing Bengals are back to 500. Somewhat of a clean slate. You can't say, you know, you need to be over 500 probably to get into the playoffs, but at least they're not way out of the race. They're still one game behind the Ravens. And because they lost to the Browns already, they're below the Browns in the rankings head-to-head. So the Bengals are going to need to pick up some wins in the second half of this season, particularly against AFC teams and AFC North opponents if they want to secure their spot in the playoffs. But overall, feeling much better about the season outlook and the prospects for this season than I was after week two. You know, Same thing about the scoring in the game. Same way for the season, how it's gone. The Bengals lost their first two. Now they've won two in a row. Maybe if it had been reversed, like win the first two games against the Browns and the Ravens, we would have been feeling really good. And then if they had lost these last three out of the last four games going into the bye week, we would have been like, oh man, the season is on the way down. So it's just, you know, all a matter of perspective. You just got to take one week at a time, one game at a time, and we're still in this thing. Thankfully, I know I said I was talking trash about the Jets. Jets are three and three also. So you never know. The Panthers, they're 0 and 6 at this point. You can probably stick a fork in them. But that's going to do it for this episode 17, the week six recap against those Seahawks. Got the win, got back to three and three. Big victory. We can feel better about this win than the win over the Cardinals. Even though the Bengals were favored in this game, I didn't predict the Bengals to win. So good. It was a good home crowd too. That's the other thing is there are a number of penalties on the Seahawks that seemed like the Bengals crowd did a good job of making noise, getting loud, causing some communication problems for the Seahawks. So good job fans of the Bengals and Paycor crowd to disrupt the Seahawks and what they wanted to do. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you have a moment, please give me a rating. Give me some feedback on Spotify or iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this. Make sure to subscribe, 
give it a rating, share it with your friends, leave a comment, all that kind of stuff. If you're on YouTube, give it a thumbs up. But come back next episode. I think I'm just going to do one episode this week, and then I'll come back early next week to do a recap of the week seven games in the NFL because the Bengals, they're on their bye week. They're not going to play any game, obviously, so there's nothing for me to preview. I'm not going to preview a bunch of games for the bunch of teams that aren't the Bengals. So I think I'll just watch the games this weekend. Everybody else, watch the games, enjoy them while the Bengals are having their off week, watch Red Zone, and root against the Steelers, against the Browns, against the Ravens if they're playing. We'll talk about anything interesting that happened in those Week 7 games while the Bengals are on their bye. But that's all for this episode, so I'm going to leave you with a who day and stay hungry for more Bengal Bites. Thank you.